Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight, as we continue our Bible study series on the life of Peter, subtitled From Fisherman to Follower of Jesus. We've been looking at the life of Peter. Um, Obviously, it's tracking through the stories of the life of Jesus, but we're just focusing on those stories that really focus in on or feature Peter. Peter was a very impetuous man, but he's somebody we can all relate to. Um, He sometimes did things right. He sometimes did things wrong. He always did it with all his heart. And uh, the reason I find myself interested in him, and I've heard so many other people say the same thing, is because Jesus never gave up on him. And Jesus still had confidence in him even when he failed because he knew that Peter would pull through. And uh, that gives us confidence to know that, you know what, if we're just really trying to serve God, do what's right, and we mess up, God will forgive us if we come back to him. And he can still use us. And he can still work in and through us. And we see that in Peter. Tonight, the title of the lesson is The Most Important Question. The Most Important Questions. We have questions all the time. We have people question us all the time, asking us questions. But I would propose that the most important question that each and every one of us and each and every person has to deal with and wrestle with is, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, if you were to do a survey or just get involved in a conversation with people and you'd ask them, well, who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? What kind of responses, what possible responses might you get besides the obvious that would come from a group like this saying, well, he's God come in the flesh, savior of the world, died for our sins. You know, the biblical answers. What are some other answers that people might give about who Jesus is? He was a good man, a good prophet, a prophet being somebody who speaks for God. What else might they say? He was perfect. Okay. Chris? Yeah, there are a number of religious systems that believe in Jesus and believe he's someone special, but they don't believe he was God. The Muslims believe that he was a great prophet. And they actually believe he's going to come back, and I forget exactly what they believe he's going to accomplish before the end, but it's not, he's not coming back as God and the Savior of the world and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he is God. And there's any number of other religious systems that assign Jesus some kind of special role, but they don't believe he's God. You know, I've got listed here, most of the ones that have been mentioned, that he was a great man. And as a great man, he's a good example, okay? One that wasn't mentioned is that he was a really good teacher, He had some great things to say. If we could just follow what he said, the world would be a better place. But usually people that say that, who don't accept him as God, they're picking and choosing his teachings. Because if we followed everything Jesus taught, the world would be a better place. But um, they wouldn't agree with all the things that he said. Um, A prophet, an important religious leader. But why is any other option other than Jesus is God come in the flesh to die for our sins? Why is any other option invalid? Have you ever thought of... Go ahead, John. What are you going to say? Can you rephrase that? Okay. Let me put it this way. It is impossible 
that Jesus is only a good man. It is impossible that Jesus is only a good example. It is impossible that Jesus spoke for God without being God. Does anybody know why? Okay. That's true. People that don't know Jesus will not often accept the truth that we believe the Bible teaches. But why is it impossible? Okay? Just looking at Jesus' life as an unbeliever, if you were to look at it logically, it is impossible to say that he was just a good man or that he was just a good example or a good teacher. It's, it, it, the, the idea comes from something that C.S. Lewis said many years ago, and maybe you've heard of it or not. Chris, you were going to say something? Do you have an answer or no? No, even from a non-believer's perspective, if somebody really thinks it through, it is impossible to believe that Jesus was just a good man or just a good example. I'm sorry, what did you say? Well, that's true. That's one of the reasons why people do not believe in Jesus is because it requires the miraculous, the virgin birth, God come in the flesh. What were you going to say, Lori? Okay, so if we, would, if we were to accept, if someone were to accept all the things that Scripture say are true, there's no way that a man could do those things. So that's true, too. But also, even if people don't accept the miraculous or whatever, it still would be impossible. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm trying to pique your curiosity. I think I have a little bit. Go ahead, Sharon, you give me your answer, then I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That's true. Without God's Spirit working in us, we would... None of us uh, fully accept who Jesus is. You know, the Bible makes it clear that God must draw us to himself before we'd even respond. The reason I said it is impossible is this. Okay, think about it this way. If we take God's word at face value, two facts. Jesus claimed to be God. And he claimed to be the only way to God. Okay, on your note sheet I have down there, John 14, 6 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, so Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. Those are some pretty audacious claims. Either they were true or they weren't. So think about this logically. C.S. Lewis posed this years ago, and I should have got the actual quote. But let's say that Jesus said that, but it wasn't true. If he said that, and it wasn't true, and he knew it wasn't true, what would he be? A liar. liar. Is a liar a good example and a good person and a good teacher? No. No. He would not only be a liar, but he'd be a deceiver because he tried to convince people so, and not only that, he'd be a hypocrite, and he would be evil because he told people to trust their faith and their relationship on with God on his statement that he was God and that he was the only way to God. So if it was true, if it was not true and he knew it, there's no way he could be a good person. Okay, he was a deceiver, he was evil. Now, if it was not true, but he really believed it, but it was not true, what does that make him? When people believe things that aren't true about themselves, delusional, delusional which is a polite way of saying crazy. So if Jesus was delusional and he was crazy and he really thought this, he was this supernatural being, but he really wasn't, he still doesn't pass the test of being a good person. I mean, he might have been good, but I'm just saying an example, somebody that we should follow and follow his teachings and all that kind of thing. Okay? I mean, how would you feel if your child or your grandchild came home and said, my teacher told me that, that, um, that um, he is God. 
It's like, I need to put him in a different class. Okay? But yet people would say, well, you know, Jesus claimed to be God, but he's a good teacher. It's like, well, no, not if it wasn't true. And he really believed it was. So that only, the only option that's left is that it's true. Okay? So I think the way that um, one person put it is that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Those are the only real choices you have. Okay? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about that in The Mere Christianity. And if you want to see his actual quote, because it's a lot more poetic than the way I put it. You can just search it on the Internet. But um, anyway, that question is a very important question. Uh, the most important question we will ever answer. I know some of you are getting antsy. You've been looking at your notes. You're just like, when are we going to fill in the blank? We're getting there. We're getting there. So we're going to be looking at this text in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. The background is that uh, Jesus is probably, if I had to guess, halfway to two-thirds of the way through his three, three-and-a-half year years of ministry. His disciples have been traveling with him for a while. Things are starting to heat up. A lot of people are excited about Jesus because it's been a number of years now. He's healing people. Uh, they like his teaching. Um, he puts the religious leaders in their place. He speaks with as one with authority. And um, they like that he feeds them Okay, <laughs> when that happens. All right. So, But the antagonism is growing, too. The religious leaders are very, very upset. They say, we've got to do something about this, Jesus. And Jesus is getting ready to enter that last year where the whole thing is just focused on the cross. He's headed to the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem for the last visit, okay? And before that happens, he takes his disciples on a retreat, okay? Most of the things that happened in Jesus' life were around the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, or in Jerusalem in the area around it, which is in the southern part of Israel, okay? Samaria is in between. So Jesus says, let's get away because he wanted to take some time to pour into his disciples' lives, all right, and kind of get them thinking the right direction and geared the right direction for this last year that's going to end in his death, all right? And so they go 25 miles northeast, which means farther away from the Sea of Galilee and even farther away from Jerusalem, hopefully where they can get away, no crowds will follow them, and... Um, and be able to find them. So they go to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. It's an area that's mainly non-Jewish. The area is known in history for their very fervent worship of Baal. You may remember him as an idol in the Old Testament. Not only that, but the Greeks really liked this area because there was this sacred cave with this spring that came out of it, which was one of the main sources of the Jordan River. And it was associated with the god Pan in the Greek religion. But not only that, but there was a special temple that was built there for the worship of Caesar. So this is an area that is well known for all of its idol worships, idol worship, both ancient idol worship, Greek idol worship, current and modern emperor worship. And this is where Jesus takes his um, disciples on a retreat to rest and to learn. And so this is a very crucial time. It's at the peak of his ministry. He's facing the cross. When he does come back out of that retreat, it's going to be getting more and more intense. Okay? And I believe that I believe that, that one of the reasons he's doing this is so that he can help the disciples begin to focus more and more on what are we here for? What, what is this all about? Who am I? Because that's the question that comes up. So let's go ahead and read the passage. It's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, these are some of the most controversial verses in church history. I'm not going to talk about out there among unbelievers. It's based on these verses primarily, along with other things, that the Catholic Church would say that Peter was the first pope and that the true church is only the church that is founded upon whatever Peter did and all of his successors and that any other church um, that is outside of that is not really the true church. And with what Jesus said to him about, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind to be bound, whatever shall be loose shall be loosed, is what gave the Catholic Church, um, because they believe it all began with Peter and then those who followed him, the ability to speak on behalf of God and to forgive sins. So the whole idea of confession, you go to a priest to confess your sins, and they have the ability to offer absolution to you for your sins. So um, obviously, um, ever since the Reformation and and, uh, the birth of Protestantism and all that kind of stuff and everything that's coming out of that, there's a whole different way of looking at that. So how do we understand this passage? Um, I think it's very unfortunate that one of the most key, crucial moments in the ministry of Jesus and the life of his disciples When he says, who do you really think that I am? That after two, two and a half years, they're finally getting it. And there's that statement that is revealed by God, like Sharon was talking about earlier. Because Jesus says, Peter, you didn't come up with that on yourself. That wasn't just some lucky guess. Okay, God led you to that revelation. It's true. But God led you to it. But then that has all been overshadowed by the other things that have come out of that. So we're going to divide the study tonight into two different parts. Probably not equal parts. But first of all, the identity of Jesus and then the identity of his followers, because, uh, or the followers of Jesus, uh, because both of them are talked about in this passage. First of all, is the identity of Jesus, and he is the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, that doesn't shake us as some kind of great revelation uh, at this point, because that's exactly what Peter said, and Jesus said, you're right. Okay? But that's the second question. The first question that Jesus asks is, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. There's some very specific reasons for that, but we don't have time to dig into it. Um, it was a way of, of relating to the human race, but it also had spiritual significance from the book of Daniel about somebody special that God was going to send called the Son of Man. Okay. Now, why did Jesus ask them, what do other people think about me? Why do you think he did that? It's only speculation, but what do you, what do you think? Why do you think he asked them, what do other people think about me? He wanted them to be real. He wanted them to be honest. Okay. Any other thoughts about why Jesus asked that specific question? Instead of just jumping in and saying, who do you think I am? He's, who do other people think I am? Yeah, to get them thinking, to get the conversation started, you know, and to get them thinking about all the different possibilities and in all the different possibilities, which one do you think is true or what do you think is true? Okay. I mean, Jesus already knew 
what people thought, but he wanted them to consider that. They mentioned several. They said, some think you're John the Baptist, which, um, you know, the only people that could probably think that would be those who were not familiar with Jesus and John the Baptist together because, you know, John the Baptist has been put to death by now. And if Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected, that means that he couldn't have existed before John the Baptist died, but yet they were seen together. So that's kind of different, but it's interesting because even Herod wondered that. You know, after he'd put John the Baptist to death and he started hearing more about, more about Jesus, he says, is John come back to life? You know, some said that he was Elijah. And the reason for that was because of the prophecies of Malachi that said that before the end would come, before the one that God is going to send would come, then Elijah would come back to prepare the way. And, of course, John the Baptist fulfilled that role. All right? And so some people were thinking that, okay, you know, they didn't see John the Baptist in the role of the Elijah-type um, person coming. So they thought maybe Jesus is the one who's coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, it said some people thought it was Jeremiah. And if you just look at the text of the Bible, we don't know why they would have thought that. But there was an old Jewish tradition that Jeremiah uh, would return before the Messiah came. Okay, it's not in the Bible, but it was an old Jewish tradition. And then it says some other people thought, well, he's just some prophet. He's someone who speaks for God. Now, all these things are compliments, but they fall short of who Jesus really is. And you know that that's exactly the way it is today. There are so many people that say some good things about Jesus, but they aren't willing to take that final step. They aren't willing to go the whole way to recognize and admit who he really is. That's why we have all these answers. Well, he was a good man, but he wasn't God. You know, he, he provides a good example, but he wasn't God. You know, well, maybe he was a godly person and God sent him and he spoke words of God, but he wasn't God. So all the answers that the disciples gave that other people said kind of fall in that same camp. But then he turns it around and he says, who do you say I am? And he really wants them to wrestle with this. He wants them to really get this. And obviously from what he said in response to Peter's confession, God revealed it to Peter. Now, whether Peter is the only one that realized it and spoke up or whether they all were beginning to have this dawning realization and Peter was just the one that spoke because Peter was often the spokesperson for the whole group. In any case, Peter was the one that spoke up and made this confession. It's called Peter's Great Confession when he said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay. Now, the Christ, as I'm so, I so often say, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Like Jesus Christ, Jesus' first name, Christ is last name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew title, the Messiah. And both of those titles mean literally the anointed one. The anointed one. In a general sense, people were anointed throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, by God to accomplish special purposes. And um, it would often be accompanied with the anointing of oil or whatever. But the significant thing is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on certain individuals to anoint them to accomplish certain things. Whether it was one of the judges, one of the kings, or a prophet, or some other great leader. Thankfully, we live in the New Testament age that now that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, he, one of the things he did once he got up there was to send the Holy Spirit. So we all have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our life. And um, so anyway, but the term in the, from out of the Old Testament was the anointed one. And 
the Jewish people looked at this anointed one, this Messiah is the one that was going to solve all the problems of the world. Okay, so I put that, uh, that summary on there. It's not an official biblical summary, but it kind of just gets the idea across of what the Jews were looking for, that this Messiah was going to be God's solution to all problems. Okay, he's the one that God was going to send to get rid of injustice and oppression. He was going to reset up God's kingdom. He'd be a descendant of David. He would be a king just as good and maybe even better than David. Okay, before Jesus came, there really wasn't any sense that the Messiah was going to be God himself. That was a real revelation, okay, that it was God himself that was going to come. He was just going to be some very, very specially empowered and anointed man that God was going to use, okay? So, this current expectation, and we've talked many times about the fact that people were looking for the Messiah, They wanted him to show up to get rid of the Romans, to set up God's kingdom, to meet all their needs, to make everything wonderful again, to bring peace and prosperity, because those were half the promises that God made about the Messiah. The only thing is is they ignored the other half the promises God made about the Messiah. And that half was that when the Messiah came, it was going to be somebody that was going to suffer to pay the price for the needs of the people, which was to take care of sin. And of course, Jesus came to do that first. So... The actual kingdom of God that Jesus is going to set up in a very physical way hasn't come yet, but he is going to come back to do that. But he took care of the sin problem first, okay? And um, I just wanted to throw this in before we go on, that even though Jesus hasn't set up God's kingdom on earth yet, Jesus still is the solution to all problems, isn't he? You know that old, old song, Jesus is the answer. You know, he really is. He really is. But Peter went on and said, not only are you the Messiah, you are the Christ, but you are the son of the living God. Now, if he's the son of the living God, the living God is in contrast to what kind of God? A dead God. Yeah. In other words, he's the real God. You know, the Jewish people in general uh, recognized that there was only one true living God. All the others were either false uh, spiritual entities or non-existent or whatever, okay? So Jesus is the son of the living God. And, and what we don't know at this point is whether they understand that he truly is God himself or if he's just somebody very, very special that God sent who's so much more than just the ordinary man, okay? So we have this great revelation. And um, this sets the stage then for them to continue to grow in their understanding of Jesus and as we follow the story forward, and as you've probably read or possibly read before in the Gospels, you know, even though Jesus let them know that, yes, I'm the Messiah, but you have to understand that as the Messiah, before I set up God's kingdom, I'm going to suffer. The religious leaders are going to reject me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. And eventually he reveals that the Romans are going to crucify him. But on the third day, he would raise again. In fact... What we're going to look at next week is what happens immediately after this event. Because after Peter says this and they're all excited, yeah, he's the Messiah, we were right all along. Jesus says, but this is going to happen. And Peter says, no, Lord, that could never happen. We're going to talk about that next week. You know, when you say no, Lord, which is a contradiction in terms. Okay. But they didn't get it. And when you read the Gospels and you read them in chronological order, that over that last year, Jesus told them at least four times. Four separate occasions. We're headed to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders, by the Romans. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. 
but I'm going to raise again. And not a single time did they really understand. But how many times do we, in our process of trying to teach other people, whether it's our children or grandchildren or somebody else, we have to repeat something over and over, and they just don't get it. But that's okay, because once it happens, it's like, oh, now I understand. (laughs) Of course, that didn't ever happen to us. We always get things the first time around, don't we? (laughs) So anyway, as we jump into this, you know, after Peter says that, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't just a good guess. Okay, but it's because God revealed it to him. And I just want to bring another little sub-point here. This is something we need to pray. God, reveal yourself to, uh, to me through your word. Give me an understanding of your word. The Bible makes it clear that one of the things, one of the roles, the respons- the, the roles and responsibilities that the Holy Spirit has in our life is to lead us into the truth and to enlighten us, to give us understanding of his word. And this is just kind of a foreshadowing of this because Peter has not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's on the day of Pentecost, but yet that work is going on in his life. Okay, And it says that Peter was blessed because he chose to believe what God revealed to him. And in the same way, that's the key to God's blessing in our lives too. When we believe God, at his, take God at his word, we believe what he has to say, and then live our lives accordingly. That's what brings God's blessing into our life. Now, I have on your note sheet, before we jump into these things about the church, um, uh, as we're talking about the followers of Jesus as the church, is that the note there is that Jesus had confidence in Peter, even knowing that he would fail. Jesus had confidence in Peter, even knowing that he would fail. As I said in the introduction to the lesson, that can bring us great uh, great comfort. God loves us. God has paid for our salvation. He has great confidence in us, not because of how wonderful we are, but because of his work in our lives. And even knowing, you know, every single time you failed, God knew about it ahead of time. Every single time I've failed. Every time you're going to fail going forward. You know, we shouldn't plan to, but we will. God knows about every single one, but yet he has confidence in us. Again, not because we're so wonderful, but because his son has paid the price for our sins and his Holy Spirit dwells within us to empower us. And even when we blow it, when we come back to him in repentance, he forgives us, picks us up, puts us back on the straight path and continues to use us. So, again, that's another great way that Peter is an example for us. So we see a couple of things in this passage about the followers of Jesus, which this is the first place Uh, in the New Testament where um, Jesus calls it the church. In fact, in all four Gospels, there's only two places where Jesus uses the word church, okay? And this is one of them. First of all, we can talk about the identity of the church. We look at Jesus' declaration. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, my church. Whether it was the first time Jesus ever used this word or not, this is the first time it's recorded in the Gospels that he used this word. He says, I will build my church. What is this church that Jesus is talking about? Okay, well, the church is the body of Christ. Okay, so in a spiritual, metaphorical way, it is his body and his presence in the world today. Okay? What else can we say or or do we know about this church? It's the body of believers. All right? Yeah? A way of life. It involves a way of life. Yes. The church, I thought a church was a building. No, you guys are all smart. But so many people think a church is a building. 
You know, the building is only where the church meets. The building is not the church. The church are the people. Sharon. It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. Yeah, it's associated with the kingdom. The church is the physical manifestation of God's kingdom in the world right now. God's kingdom is a lot bigger and grander than just the church, but the church is the physical manifestation of it in this time in history. Yeah, Chris. Yes, we are, we are the body of Christ. Okay? All right. Yeah, he's the head, and we're the rest of the body. Paul talks about that a lot, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. On your note sheet, letter A, I have here, the word church means a group or assembly of people. The word that is used for church in Greek is ekklesia, and I'm not trying to get all scholarly on you, but that's just what it is. But it was not a word that Jesus made up. It was not even a religious word at the time. An ecclesia was a group of people that had been called out for a special purpose. In the Greek world, it was used for when a big decision needed to be made in the community and somebody would go through the community and call out, we need to have a meeting because we've got to discuss this and make a decision. And everybody would gather together and the purpose was to, to take care of that issue. Okay, And so it beca- it's a really, really good word. And obviously God thought so because that's what he chose to use, you know, for the church. Called out ones. You know, in a spiritual sense, we are called out of the world to join together to accomplish something for God's kingdom. And by the way, this is where the assemblies of God get their name. Not saying that God had the assemblies of God when he said this. But I'm just saying because this word means assembly. Okay? A number of places in the New Testament where it talks about the church of God, if you were to translate it literally, it would say the assembly of people of God. So the assembly of God is actually in the New Testament. It just doesn't come through in the English translations, just so you know. Lynn, you had your hand up. Mm-hmm. Wherever believers are gathered, God's there, and that is the church. But it's not the building they're in. It's, it's the people. But there are people out in the world that would still refer to a building as a church. That's what I'm saying. I don't mean believers refer to the building as the church. But other people that are out there will talk about a building as being a church. Okay. So the word church literally means a group or assembly of people, and so it can be used to refer to a specific church. In fact, in the New Testament, it is many times when Paul talks about the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus or the church at Thessalonica. Those are talking about specific body of believers, and what's really interesting is they didn't even have their own buildings at that time. They met in homes, so it was obvious it was talking about the people. Okay, But there is one other way in which the word Church is used in the New Testament, and that actually is the way that Jesus is using it right now. Okay? When he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, he's not talking specifically about one certain group of believers, he's talking about all believers. Okay? And we call that the universal church. Exactly. Okay? Letter B on your note sheet the universal church is all believers everywhere. Okay? And here's another. A uh, piece of trivia you may or may not know. The reason the Catholic Church is called Catholic, the word Catholic literally means universal. Okay? In fact, there is one of the creeds. There's a number of creeds that were developed over church history throughout you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 um, A.D. And one of them specifically talks about, I believe in the Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's talking about all of God's people all over of all time, okay, the universal church. And so this is the church that Jesus is talking about, okay, that he says, I will build my church, the body of believers, through history, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I like this definition of church. I should have put it on your note sheet, but I didn't. It says, a church is a gathering of God's people 
focused on God's purposes, dependent on God's presence. That's right. The foundation is very strong. In fact, that's the next point we're going to here. Number two, the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. It's solid. Okay, so Peter makes this great confession. He makes this great declaration. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And here's where it gets a little tricky. When Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. He's the one that builds it. He says, I'm going to build it on this rock. What is this rock? Well, first of all, let's talk about the importance of a foundation. How important is a foundation? Very. You know, here in Florida, well, I guess it's true anywhere, but foundation is so important, especially with the sandy soil around here. You need to have a really good foundation because your house is going to settle and, you know, you got the whole thing, sinkholes and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're getting ready um, in a couple of weeks here. I'm going to have somebody paint the outside of my house. I've been busy scrubbing the outside, get it all ready. But, you know, there's little teeny tiny cracks, okay, in the walls. And I've had people look at it that, no, and they said, no, no, don't worry. You don't have a sinkhole. You know, you don't have a problem. That's just settling, you know. And one of the things we're going to do beforehand is put in some sealant and take care of that before it's painted and all that kind of stuff. But, but, but we've got a good foundation, all right. And, you know, I've read about that when they build these big skyscrapers, that they have to go so far down uh, to put the foundation. As you can imagine, you're not going to pour a, a six-inch slab and build a, you know, a hundred-story <laughs> skyscraper on top of that, you know. Um, it, it, you know, even in, the, even in nature, in, in the natural realm, you know, if you look at a tree, there's almost as much of the tree below ground as you see above ground. That's how big the root system is to provide the solid foundation for that tree to be strong, okay? And so the foundation has got to be very, very, uh, very, very strong, and it's very, very important, and that's true for God's church, okay? The foundation is important. It's the source of strength, stability, success, victory over opposition. So Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is this rock that Jesus is talking about what is the foundation, the rock of the church? What'd you say, Bruce? Okay, the truth of what Peter said. Okay, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? He says, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's that truth that the church is built upon. Is that what Jesus means by this? Somebody's saying, Yeah. Some of you are like, mm, Maybe. It certainly is true. We'll come back to that. Joan? Jesus himself. Not just the truth about Jesus, but Jesus himself. Is that a biblical thought? Yes. Yeah? Okay, I'm glad you finally... Yeah? Okay. Have you heard any other theories about what this rock is that Jesus is talking about that he built his church on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, another very important principle, which we're not going to dig deeply into tonight, but we will reference it. We already have, but it's going to be in our notes, is the fact that Jesus has talked about not only is the foundation, but the cornerstone. And it goes, comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament. I can't remember if it was Isaiah or one of the other prophets, but he prophesied about this cornerstone that would be rejected by men, but it was approved by God. 
Okay? And Jesus actually quoted that, referring to himself. And then Peter and Paul both also referred to it. If I remember, I know Peter did for sure. And I think Paul may have referred to it too. So that's also part of this idea of this foundation, this rock. But I'd ask if you guys um, had heard of any other possible things and nobody said anything, whether you didn't want to, you didn't hear it. But this is where the Catholic Church gets that Peter is the foundation of the church. So where did they get that from? From Peter's name. Okay. Remember way back our first lesson, we looked at John when Peter first meets, meets Jesus. Peter is not the name that he was born with. His name was Simon. And when he first meets Jesus, Jesus says, your name is Simon, but you're going to be Peter. What does Peter mean? Rock. But it's very important to note that the name Peter is derived from the word for rock, which means a small rock or a small stone. Whereas when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he says, Petra instead of Petros, which means this big, giant, major foundation type stone. So there are those who say, well, he's talking about Peter, but Peter's just a man. It's still, but it's still based on Peter. But then others say, well, no, you know, Peter is named the rock, but the rock Jesus is talking about is a much bigger thing. So let's just talk about these a little bit because it's interesting because there's a little bit of truth in all these. There's a lot of bit of truth in the ones about Jesus. But there's even a little bit of truth in the ones that, 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 that say that Peter is part of the foundation. And sometimes people that are not Catholic shy away from that because they don't want to look like they're giving in to what the Catholic Church has, has, has said all about the Pope and they're the only ch- real church and all that kind of stuff. But there is some truth to the fact that Peter is part of the rock and the foundation of the church. And we'll look at it right now, okay? So when we talk about what is this foundation, the first one I have down here, letter A, is Jesus himself which is one of the first answers you guys gave. Jesus himself. And we do know this is a biblical principle because Scripture says that. Matthew 21, 42 is where Jesus refers to what Lynn was talking about, which is a quote from one of the prophets. Jesus said, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Peter refers back to that in Acts chapter 4 when he's preaching a message. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12, he's preaching. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says, you know what? You guys rejected Christ, but he's that cornerstone that was prophesied by Isaiah. And that stone is the foundation. It's the cornerstone. It's the foundation of God's work in God's church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He was talking about his work among the churches and especially the Corinthians. And he says, I came and laid the foundation for this church. And he wasn't talking about a physical building because they didn't have one. He was talking about the establishment of the church in that city. And he says, the foundation I laid was Jesus there's been some false teachers that have come in, some divisive people that have tried to lay other foundations. He says, no, there's only one valid foundation for the church, and that's Jesus Christ. And then on your note sheet, I have down 1 Peter 2, 4 to 6, but it's basically more of the same, so we won't read that. But you can read it later. Letter B is the other option. And I say option, although I would say I think there's a little bit of the shades of each of these meanings here. Um, that was mentioned, the truth revealed through Peter's confession. I think, Bruce, you're the one that said that. The statement that Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one God's sending to make everything right, and you are the Son of the living God. And it's that truth, as it is accepted, 
responded to in relationship with God and then lived out that is the foundation of the church. And that's true too, you know, because the foundation is the truth. Letter C, some people say it's Peter's faith. Not in the sense it was just Peter's faith, but he exhibited faith. And other people, as they are believers, and they exhibit faith. Faith certainly is part of the foundation of the church too, isn't it? I mean, we have no church if it wasn't for faith. And then letter D is the one that we get a little leery about. Peter himself. Is there any sense in which Peter himself could be considered part of the foundation of the church? I see some people shaking their heads, yes. In what way? Okay. Is there any way in which Peter, more so maybe than we would be, would be considered part of the foundation of the church? Because you're right. We can all be part of the foundation. Lori, what were you shaking your head about? Okay, so if I could paraphrase, summarize what you said there, put it in different words, because I don't remember all your words. <laughs> Peter was there at the beginning. He was the leader. But him and the other apostles, they were, the, they were part of the foundation because they were the beginning. They were beginning of it. Okay, and Scripture indicates that too. Okay? Uh, you could say that Peter was the first stone besides the cornerstone. Yeah, if you think about the idea of a foundation, it's the beginning You know, God used all the disciples who became apostles, disciples meaning followers, apostles being sent ones, to start the churches. And then Paul, you know, he talked about how he laid a foundation. I saw Chris's hand a little while ago. Did you have something to add at this point? Yeah, when you look at the book of Acts, Peter is the first major leader of the church. But the thing that argues against the fact that he was the first pope and everything succeeds from him is that you get to about chapter 12 and he takes off and goes doing evangelistic work and he fades into the distance. And now James, Jesus' half-brother, rises up and he is the leader of the mother church in James. Okay, so that wouldn't seem to indicate that Peter was the first pope because now we've got a different leader. But anyway, we're not here to argue against Catholic doctrine. I'm just saying that that's another issue that is there. So, as I said, in the Catholic position, the establishment of Peter was the first pope and then whoever succeeded him. All right. But Scripture does indicate that Peter, and not just Peter, as Laurie said, the other apostles are part of the foundation too. Okay. Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. It says, The household of God, talking about the church, is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Going back to what Lynn said. So Jesus is the ultimate foundation and all the truth about Jesus and our faith in Jesus. But in a very real way, he's the cornerstone and the apostles were part of the foundation too. In fact, when you look at the vision of God's city in Revelation, it says the foundation stones are named after the apostles. So that's a very uh, metaphorical, spiritual way of looking at that too. Okay, Um, And, you know, in a very real way... Peter was the one that opened the door to the church, to the major groups of people. He's the one that God used to preach on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to fill the church and the church was born. In Acts chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on a group of people that were not Jews, pure-blood Jews, it was the Samaritans. It was under Philip's ministry, but it wasn't given validity by the church. I'm not saying that's right or wrong until Peter and John went up and checked it out to make sure it was real. And they prayed for them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the very, very first Gentiles that we have recorded that are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit are in Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10. And who's the one that led them into that experience? Peter. And it started out Peter didn't want to because <laughs> Peter was prejudiced too. 
He thought it was all for the Jews. And God had to really deal with his heart and say, no, it's for everybody. Okay? And so in a very real way, Peter was the foundation. In the sense, He was the, the beginning one to really open the doors. That goes a little bit toward the thing where Jesus also said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you got Jesus as the cornerstone, then the disciples, and you build each layer through history, we're at the top of the skyscraper right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Peter, I think it's Peter that talks about how we are being built into a temple, and each of us is like a stone that's fitted into the wall. Yeah, lots of great spiritual principles there. The last one is letter E. Uh, what is this? What is this rock? Peter as a representative of all the disciples. That's what you said earlier, Lori. That same passage in Ephesians 2, verse 20, where it says the foundation of the apostles, not the foundation of Peter alone, but the foundation of all the apostles with Jesus as the cornerstone. Okay. The next thing we have is the strength of the church. Same verse, verse 18. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to build the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail, which indicates that they're going to try, right? Right. Now, um, basically what he's saying is that there's going to be opposition, but it will not be ultimately successful. I mean, there's going to be some hard times. There's going to be some times when the church goes through it really rough. And the individual members of the church, all of us as believers, but ultimately God's church will prevail. Now, the gates here um, in... Old Testament and New Testament time represented the gates of a city, which was the place of authority and decision-making. You know, we think of today as, you know, um, city hall, courthouse, or whatever. Well, in their culture, in their society, all the elders, the older men, would sit in the gates. And that's where people went for wisdom. That's where people went to have decisions made. That's where anything that would be considered a court case was decided was in the gates. Okay? We often think of the gates of hell as... The powers of Satan and demonic forces. But that's not the understanding of hell that they had at this time. Because the word for hell there is Hades. And it basically just meant the place of the dead. All right? And so what Jesus is literally saying is that I'm going to build my church. And death can't, even death can't stop it. Even death can't stop it. And we certainly see that manifested in Jesus' own death. When Jesus was crucified, the disciples thought it was all over. Don't know how this happened. Don't know why it happened. It surely, surely shouldn't have happened, but it's all over. <laughs> and Jesus had been telling them all along, no, it's not. I'm coming back. You know. And this is another prophecy that letter A there, Jesus' death could not stop the church. But even if you were to look at Hades as the source of spiritual opposition or whatever, uh, you could look at it that way. Letter B, hell's plans and power cannot stop the church either. Hell's plans and power cannot stop the church either. And I heard somebody preach this at one time, and I'm not saying this is what Jesus means by this, but it's a really great picture, okay? Um, Sometimes when people have read this verse and thought about it, preached it, taught it, or whatever, God's going to establish the church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. They kind of picture the church as this solid uh, it's picturesque anyway, this solid uh, build, building or fort or whatever, and hell is just attacking it, right? And that's okay because it's going to stand strong. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you seen anybody attack anything with gates? You don't attack. You attack gates, right? 
And so the person I heard preach this says, the gates of hell, it's like hell is this stronghold. It's the church that's going against it, and the gates of hell can't withstand it. The church is going to break through. Now, I'm not saying that's what Jesus meant by this, but it sure is a cool picture. And it certainly is valid scripturally, as far as principles is concerned, that when the church takes a stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power and forces of the enemy cannot withstand. Yeah. So, anyway. You know, in a very personal way, we can be encouraged that God's plans, not only for the church, but for each and every one of us as an individual, cannot be thwarted by the, by the power of the enemy. You know, I mean, we can give in to temptation and give a little leeway, but we can repent and come back. But whatever the enemy brings against us, if we stand strong in the Lord, he will not have the ultimate victory. You know, we may go through things when we're wondering, <laughs> but if that happens, it's only because God's allowing it for a certain reason, but he will not have the ultimate victory. Let's go on then to the last one there, number four, the authority of the church. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in earth, on earth. Uh, we're just going to deal with this in a, in a quick way. But he talks about the keys of the kingdom. These are two separate things. He says the keys of the kingdom. You know, keys are used to unlock and open doors. And, and most Bible scholars believe that basically what Jesus is saying is you guys are going to get it started. You're going to open the doors for people to be able to come into the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what happened. We already talked about Peter going out, being the leader of the first church, and he went out and he preached on Pentecost. He went to Samaria. He went to Cornelius' house. And around chapter 12, um, after he was released from prison, he just took off and began to do evangelism. And he was one of the, the, the beginning ones, the main ones that's reported in Scripture anyway, that opened the doors for the church. But so did the rest of the apostles and the disciples. You know, it's a really interesting study. If you study what happened to the 12 minus Judas, you know, uh, disciples that became apostles, according to history, all the places they went and the things that they did to take the gospel to the world, okay? As far as this binding and loosing, um, it's kind of an interesting way the way it is worded in the original language. It's, it basically means, it, it, it's worded literally, whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will have been loosed in heaven. And, and the idea that's there, at least most Bible scholars, is that, you know, God is the one that set the standard. And it's bound in heaven. But you have the privilege of proclaiming that. And experiencing that in the power of the Holy Spirit as you do ministry. So, yes, you will bind and loose. You will declare the truth. You will tell people what God's word says. You will tell people what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. But it's not because you've made it up or because you decided yourself. It was already decided by God in heaven. But because it's firm in heaven, it has power and authority as you proclaim that and you, 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 um, you, you carry that out in your ministry. Lynn, you want to say something? Yeah, both of the statements have to do with power and authority. One has to do with opening up, you know, the kingdom, and the other one has to do with making decisions, yeah, and proclaiming the decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. They give me the access to the resources that God has available for us. Now, just want to make this last statement here in contradistinction to somebody would say, well, Peter's the one that has that authority. Well, Jesus is talking to Peter right here, but Jesus gives that authority to all the disciples. Okay, and um, the authority is given to all the disciples. John twenty twenty two to twenty three. After the resurrection, when Jesus comes to them in one of his many visits with them, um, it says, "And when Jesus had said this, he had said some things. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld." Again, that is not trying to say they have the authority on their own initiative to forgive people or to withhold it. 
But they have the authority as the spokespersons of God to say, this is the conditions under which God forgives, and so you can be forgiven. This is the conditions under which God won't forgive, and so you're not forgiven, which is not repenting and, and all that kind of thing. In Matthew 18, 18, Jesus told all the disciples, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So both of these statements that Jesus makes specifically to Peter in today's passage were actually made to all the disciples. Okay. All right, so we need to wrap this up. It's time to go. But let me just say that it is important that Jesus is the foundation for any church and every church, including our church. But what does that mean? What it means is that we have to look really closely at why do we exist and why do we function the way we do? Are we after power and authority and just having a really nice country club we can all come and enjoy each other's presence? Are we all about Jesus and his purposes and his plans? But that's not only true for churches, but it's true for individual lives. That's why I said we need to examine our own hearts. Is Jesus truly the foundation of our life? Is he a nice little add-on? Is he our guest room, you know? Is he our recreation room where we go when we feel like getting away? Or is he really the foundation? Well, how can you tell? Well, I encourage you to read Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. It's the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know what, if I'm truly the foundation of your life, it means that you're paying attention to what I'm saying and you're living it out. That's just a good way to say it. That's where he tells that parable about the wise man not only listens to what I'm saying, but they do what I'm saying. He's like the man who puts his house on a firm foundation, and when the storms come, it's not destroyed. The foolish man is the one, he may listen to what I'm saying, but he doesn't live it out. And so they're wiped out when the storm comes. So that's something only each of us can do is to look at our own lives and say, is Jesus really the foundation of my life or is he something i've kind of added to my life and i encourage and challenge you to consider that as we close tonight we better pray father thank you for this time that we've had together tonight to look at your word this great profession confession of peter on behalf of his of of jesus's followers lord god we thank you lord that you are the christ that you really are the solution to all the world's problems, that you did come to set up God's kingdom and you laid the foundation by purchasing our salvation and you're building that kingdom even now and there will be an ultimate victory. Your church will be victorious, is victorious already, but will be ultimately victorious. And we thank you that that can be true of our own lives as we live for you. I pray for victory for anybody in this place or who may be listening to this later who's not experiencing victory right now, Lord, that they would stand on the truths of your word and your promises and your love for them so they can experience victory. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your word and its impact on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.